You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. Today's guest needs little introduction because I'm interviewing the one and only Northman trader, Mr. Sven Henrich. Sven is a major contributor to the financial space as a global macro analyst and investor. He has a substantial following for many of his thoughtful charts and identifying major shifts in the macro environment. As a fan of Sven's for numerous years, I was always frustrated that he was not a Bitcoiner. But as of recently, he's actually come around on the idea, and we talk about this amongst many other macro topics throughout the show. So without further delay, it brings me great pleasure to bring on one of my personal favorites, Mr. Sven Henrich. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Sven. Sven, I've been following you for years. I've been following you for years. And the two of us have had a few dust ups here and there, you know, arguing over certain <laughs> things. But I think the really, honest, I, honestly, I think it's all in I think it's all in good. Uh, you know, I, w- both of us are trying to seek the truth, I think, at the end of the day. And I think that's where you when you see those collisions, you know, there's something there. Maybe you're missing something. Maybe you got something right. And that's the great thing about being online. But here's where I want to start with this. Welcome to the show. We're in a raging inflationary environment all around the world. And it seems like we should, or there could be a deflationary bust brewing. But then I'm looking at oil prices and I'm looking at these expectations over in, over in Europe for what they're thinking oil prices are going to be. And I don't know what to think, right? So what, what are your thoughts on some of this? Hey, Preston, first of all, Glad to be with you. Do we have dust ups? I'm I'm not sure. We, we, I think we just teased each other a little bit here and there, but it's part of the journey, absolutely. But that's a good thing, by the way. You it know, is. I mean, you know, just maybe starting off with social media in in general. You know, you you can disagree on some things, and I think everybody got to be humble enough to let their views evolve over over time. Amen. It just you don't never need to be personal or anything like that. If yeah. Good, Good nature's jive is fair enough, but <laughs> let's go wild. Amen to that. Yes, not pressing the background. Where do I start? I mean, I maybe just a quick background because you know I've been known to be kind of a central bank critic for more than a week or two. It's painful for all of us to recognize that the the macro environment has devolved in in a painful way for a lot of people over the years. I, I've been a critic on the sense that all the interventions that we've seen over the past 15 years have widened the wealth gap. And you know, central banks, Powell himself, parading up front how central bank policies do not, absolutely do not contribute to inequality when all the actual evidence is exactly there on the table. It's creating rifts in, in society. And then, of course, the goal now to come say, comes he comes out last week and says, well, now that we're producing QE and bringing out, or we're actually starting QT, we're taking the liquidity out, it's going to be bad for asset prices. <laughs> so while you're not admitting that you're boosting asset prices on, on the way up, you know, you're certainly now using it as an excuse why asset prices may be going down. So there's an inherent dishonesty in the entire construct. And all of us 
you know, we, we have to listen to all this. And these, these people tend to put themselves on pedestal or be, being put on pedestal by the media as the great wise men and women global monetary system. Well, they just revealed themselves to not be that at all. They're not wise. They can be horrifically wrong. And they ignored all the precautions that left them in terms of continuing to print into an environment where we did have supply chain issues, where we had fiscal stimulus the likes we've never seen before. And they just kept adding liquidity into what I last year obviously kept screaming about was this massive asset bubble and everything exacerbating housing prices by buying mortgage-backed securities when there was no housing prices. You know, so they, everything got literally exacerbated to historic degrees. And then, now of course, what happens while they ignored all this, you know, even in December, I mean, I just need to make this point, in December, CPI was already 7%. And the Fed, in their wisdom, put out this Fed funds forecast of less than 1% for 2023. You know, so this, this broad disconnect was already there. They were still living in la-la land. Now, to be fair, they're not controlling a Russia invasion of Ukraine, which certainly exacerbated things. And so you have, on this inflation question, you have really multiple factors that are coming at play, and it's nasty. You had the monetary fiscal excess, you had the supply chain issues, you had the Russia-Ukraine war, which is ongoing, which is fueled energy and food prices globally, which the Fed does not have any control over. And then the other part is psychology. And, you know, we saw this in the 20s in Germany, it was just one psychology kind of feeds on itself. You, you risk that you have that vicious cycle, right? And then, you know, wage growth, you know, people demand more of it, wages, and it, it just feeds on itself in terms of expectations. So it's a really dangerous time in, in this sense because we are already seeing the economy slowing down rapidly. Asset prices have dropped significantly. In fact, this first half of the year was one of the worst first halves in all of history. And it got exacerbated also by the fact that not only stocks dropped, which was the standard kind of curve in the last 40 years, because bonds also dropped. So that in terms of being, finding a place to hide, there really wasn't any in terms of the large investment groups. And then, of course, you have a new asset class, crypto, Bitcoin, and everything got smacked, right? So the cumulative impact on the wealth effect is dramatic. And they had, for the last, since the financial crisis, they've used, and they will never admit it, but I'll just say it, they used the stock market to manage the economy. Bernanke, actually, as a former Fed chair, when he was Fed chair, he said, you know, in 2012, you know, when, when the stock market goes up, consumers feel more confident. They want to spend more. They, you know, that's what it really is all about. And they constructed this over those last 15 years, intervening at every single step of the way, believing, apparently, that this all could be consequence-free. Well, now we see the consequences unfolding, but now they're in a position where they can't rescue the stock market because of inflation still being a dramatic problem. So the question is, how do you then ultimately solve this? Uh, and how can we wiggle through it? Because, and I'll, I'll finish on this point, the Fed funds rate that I mentioned earlier, the projected Fed funds rate, 
that they had at less than 1% in December for 23. They now have at, you know, over 3% going to 3.8% in 2023. Let me tell you something. When you build an empire of debt totally financed by cheap money, you cannot raise rates to certain levels without, without you facing a major, major bear market, depression, what have you. So to me, this is just another Fed put that's been placed in the market because while they're saying 3.8% Fed funds rate for 2023, they're also at the same time projecting positive GDP growth. I'll just say it straight out. That's a lie. It's just not going to happen. And the reason that's not going to happen is because we've seen for the last 30, 40 years, the Federal Reserve being able to raise rates to a lower high, to a lower high, to a lower high. Each cycle, they can tighten policy less and less and less. Why? Because the debt construct has completely blown up in everybody's face. Notice the crisis get larger, the interventions get larger, yeah. and the debt requirements get larger. I mean, think about it. Back in just 20 years ago, the debt was five and a half trillion. Now it's over 30 trillion. We just added nine trillion in debt in four years. And in, in 2018, they couldn't even get, they got barely to 2.25% on the Fed funds rate. And they stopped. They stopped because the market collapsed. The recession was kind of a risk factor for them. So they pivoted because they can't handle these more big market drawdowns. So now we've had an even larger bear market. Actually, it's the most extensive bear market since 2009 in terms of length. Yes, COVID crash was deep, but it was fast because they intervened. But this is dragging on. And as you see, consumer confidence, the lowest consumer sentiment, rather, is the lowest ever. That, that's recessionary. So you're already, you're already risking very much a recession. And my, my premise in general is to say that there's no way they can get to 3.8% without a, a major recession. They can't raise rates into a major recession. So ultimately, I expect there will be a pivot. We can discuss what that may look like. Yeah, do, do you, they can't. They can't do it. So everybody's saying that they're not going to do anything until something breaks. Do you do you share that sentiment? Well, first of all, they have to have. If you if you look at from now from the Fed's perspective, let's say they are in the box, like I say they are. Yeah. And they they got themselves they got the policy completely wrong. They got themselves trapped. They are in a position where they've lost a lot of credibility maybe all credibility at this point is because not only because they got it wrong, but because obviously over the years, they've trained the investor mindset to always expect an intervention. And, and they were, I, I would say they were genuinely scared of something ever breaking again, like during the financial crisis. So that's why we saw, you know, after QE1, we saw QE2, QE3, and all the other central banks starting this, to apply this in this deflationary environment that we were in. But if you build an entire construct of growth dependent on the market, meaning market levels, yeah, last year everybody ignored this, but I kept pointing this out. Market cap to GDP in the 70s, 80s, you know, was around 40 to 60%. That's kind of, and it went on for decades like this, right? And then we had this big tech bubble building and we saw something we'd never seen before. It went to about 150% market cap to GDP. So the market was valued a lot more than the economy itself in terms of annual GDP generation. Then we had the tech bubble burst, then we dropped to about 75%. We went, went back to the normal range, if you will. That was the bottom. 
then they came up with the housing bubble, right? Because they kept interest rates low and then uh, that fueled a new fire speculation, got to about 137% market cap to GDP. Then we had the global financial crisis, went down to 50% market cap to GDP. So these were kind of these excesses that right-sized themselves after things broke. Well, in December, you know, they actually had lifted the whole thing up to over 200% market cap to GDP. And everybody ignored it. So it's like, this is madness, right? You cannot expect to have a long-term, you know, disconnected financial system that is not backed up by actual productive growth in, in the economy. So the fact that the bubble now burst is maybe a positive in the sense that, okay, we're getting back to a right-sizing type process. The problem is it's so big, we're still high. We're still in the 165, 170% range. So we're just kind of sitting on top of the tech bubble <laughs> at this point, right? So how do you, from a policy perspective, convince the market that you're actually serious without then actually breaking something. So this is the, this is the art of jawboning, as, it's, as mm. it's called, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the beginning of the year, I said, right, this article out where I talked about, okay, maybe this, this year is all about gaming the Fed. And if I were the Fed, what I would do is I would jawbone and get the market to tighten for me as much as possible so that actually I don't have to raise rates to the point where I break things but everything, you know, let stocks fall for once, right? Take the excess demand part of the, the equation, demand destruction, create, you know, mm-hmm, slow mm-hmm, it down. Mm-hmm. And then when the time comes and, and, and do all this without actually causing a crash, right? Mm-hmm. And interesting enough on that point, this is so strange about how this market's been acting this year is because we made lower highs and lower lows, lower highs, lower lows on the S&P. But so did the VIX. Mm. You know, the, the, the peak spike was in January. I was baffled. I got to tell you, and I think a lot of you are probably baffled that in at the June lows, when we went into the 3600 area, the VIX was again making a lower high. You know, you, you would have expected in, in standard market functioning, you would have some sort of capitulation VIX spike now. And we can discuss that separately. It's, it's kind of an oddity because it almost makes it feel like this whole thing is a bit controlled. It's like it's managed in some way, you know, and I'm not saying we can't have a massive X spike still because I actually long-term still see that coming. But I just, in terms of market behavior, I find that very, very odd. So if that was my theory that they're going to let this happen with job boning, then this was all going according to plan. Again, Russia, Ukraine, I think, made things a lot more difficult for them because of the energy price and food price inflation component. And, and this is where the, the actual narrative doesn't make sense. And you actually heard Powell admit to that last week because he was challenged on this. What we do in terms of rate hikes is not going to impact energy or food prices at yeah, all. Yeah. And, and so this is, and this is the perversity of this all right now. So if it's not impacting and no benefit to the consumer, then why are you now smacking everyone on housing and everything else? Because let's face it, it's going back to this wealth inequality piece. The bottom 50% did not benefit from all that money printing yeah. in the yeah. run-up of asset prices. If you don't own assets, you don't see asset price appreciation. You don't. And so this Druckenmiller mm-hmm. talked about this last year as well. 
terms of how they're really just benefiting the, the upper tier of society, especially the top 10%. And we had it with data, you can see it, you know, 89% stocks or 89% of stocks owned by the top 10% is just, it's a no brainer. So they, they really benefited from this. And the bottom 50% also got hurt because they were increasingly priced out of the housing market. Mm-hmm. And then thanks, now they got inflation. You know, if you're in the bottom 50%, inflation, food and energy is hurting you more than, than someone that's in the top tier income. Yeah. Higher gas prices. Okay. I've paid more in my tank. I don't care. Right. It's really, it's just a minute part of my monthly expenditure flow. Right. It, I mean, that's, that's unfortunately the reality of, of what's been happening. And then now with housing, rent prices have been obviously screaming up as well. So you, you just get beaten down more and more if you're in the bottom 50%. And those two stimulus checks, they didn't help you in the sense that, okay, they helped you while the crisis was going on. So it keep, kept you afloat. Worst case, maybe you got caught up in the bubble and, and put it in, you know, some coin somewhere. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's just reality, right? So now inflation is going to continue on the food and energy front until we see some sort of solution with Russia, Ukraine. And if the Fed is not really careful here by wanting to continue to raise rates, uh, then they're going to break something. Yes, they're, they're going to put us in a, in a major recession because they're making everything else more expensive, right? They're making the, the... Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. 
It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Does the next response, does it come in at the, at the same size of COVID? Or are they going to try to do a much smaller response because they know that if they do something substantial, that, they're, that the inflation prints are coming right back and maybe with even more magnitude? Well, this is this is the interesting part because I think we all need to be just humble, understanding that this is this is all a really unique set of circumstances, and I don't think anybody has a clue how this can play out. I mean, yeah. the standard script is, yeah, we go into recession, now we're going to go back to printing because they have to. <laughs> as I mentioned, yeah, you know, over thirty trillion dollars in debt. I actually, Wall Street Journal had a piece out this weekend. I think uh, that the cost of servicing the U.S. debt has already increased by thirty percent in the last year, and that's with that doesn't even account for the latest rate hike, okay? It's just the, the minuteness of the rate hikes and the financing conditions. Is, again, if you go to 3.8%, what are we talking about? You know, on the one hand, they say, you know, that that is not sustainable. Both Yellen and, and Powell have been saying this for, the, for years. On the other hand, you know, they, they put in the conditions where that continues. And, and so now this, by the way, you know, somebody say critically of me says, well, you were ranting about them not raising rates for years, so why are you not critical of them raising rates? I'm, I'm not critical of them raising rates. I'm, I'm just trying to be realistic about what this implies to the debt construct and the economy that has been made so dependent on asset price inflation when it doesn't have asset price deflation. So the short answer is, I guess, it depends on how inflation evolves. I think and we're all looking at the negative side. Maybe we can also look at at what a potential positive could be. If energy and food price inflation are so tied to Russia, Ukraine, and that being a geopolitical event, what if that actually solves itself? I know that seems completely unrealistic at the moment, but let's say they do come to a political situation, and I can, I can come up with a scenario where that might happen, then all of a sudden, just inflation is going to collapse on that front. On the commodity side, Look at copper, massive bear market already, aluminum, lumber, all these kind of commodities, they're already dropping hard, big time. So if we're looking at data this summer, I think we need to keep an open mind in terms of how this, this can evolve, because there's obviously the consumer part of inflation, but then there's also core inflation, what the Fed looks at. Mm-hmm. And, and so you get one headline on Russia, Ukraine, and then it's over. And then given how positioning is at the moment, which is some of the most negative I've ever seen, because people are, I mean, Jesus, I mean, that happens at every bottom, but, you know, yeah, <laughs> people yeah. get really bearish. In fact, the AAII bull bear ratio right now is some of the worst since the 90s. It's worse than the global financial crisis. It's close, worse than it was during the 2000 tech bubble burst. So 
I think people are not prepared if, if there's any good news coming in, in, in the sense of positioning and how vicious actually a, a comeback rally may be. And then all of a sudden, just, all of a sudden it just disappears, right? Mm. Uh, because then you're looking next year at massive retrace numbers in terms of the inflationary component. And that, that, that gives them room to basically stop, you know, and then, then basically if you, if you have some good news with COVID, you know, in terms of you know, like oh, today, China announced they're easing restrictions again, supply chain easing, and then you can go back to some sort of normal. And keep in mind, the market is already pricing and rate cuts for next year. So uh, while the Fed is talking about 3.8%, the market's already saying this is a short-term thing. So you got to be mindful of that as well. How that plays in terms of timing, nobody knows. How are you looking at real estate right now? Because with these rates and in the the speed at which the rates have occurred, so we've gone, you know, here in the U.S., just call it generically three percent to six percent in real estate rates. I'm not sure what it is over there in the U.K., but it almost seems like it, that the economic reality of of that has not hit the market yet or that it's just about to. So what are your thoughts on that and like the timing of like how some of that might play out? Yeah. So first of all, let me say, since uh, the global financial crisis, we've all come to, well, we've been trained to expect bear markets to only last, you know, at the most six to eight weeks before <laughs> the next round of intervention comes in, right? This one's been dragging on. actually started in November. That's when everything peaked. The S&P peaked in January, but small caps, everything else peaked in November and, and it's just been going on. So we're, we're already in the most extensive bear market that we've seen since the global financial crisis. But bear markets can also last for years. Right? We've, we've not been there. And I think the question here for us now is, okay, going into the second half of the year, if we do see improvement in in inflation, can we actually get out of this phase here now? Or is there the big second shoe to drop, to your point, real estate? And, and that's the problem when you build an everything bubble, right? Not mm. only a bubble in stocks, crypto, you can argue, but you know, in bonds, we clearly had a bond bubble, but also in real estate. This is why I've been so critical of the Fed because they bought like $1.9 trillion in mortgage-backed securities in, into a red-hot housing markets, a policy that was designed to bail the housing market out, you know, in a low supply type of environment, the housing market clearly can't handle higher rates either. It, it just, it just can't. I mean, if, if you got a 30 year mortgage at two and a half percent, great, you know, <laughs> but now you're looking at five and a half, what, six, it's just going to kill, it's going to kill demand and it's going to could kill the construction side of it. Cause if you, if you, if you oh, don't yeah. have demand, then yeah. you're not going to invest. And if you're all of a sudden you're paying a lot more, you know, to finance your projects, you're not going to take that risk. So they're, they're looking and staring at a complete collapse there as well. How is that helping the consumer, right? The upside to this, it could make things a bit, again, more affordable and to get some sort of balance. The big issue is what you raised, which is the speed, the velocity of what has happened with yields. So I, I, I want to raise that issue real quick because I think that's really important. 10-year yield to me is one of the most important charts out there along with the dollar and the uh, junk yields, if you will, junk H, J and K, it's, it's junk, it's an interesting chart. That chart actually is on a point where you would intervene typically. In fact, maybe the, the whole system right now is we're in a situation where typically they would intervene. 
to save everything, but now, now they can't. But the 10-year yield, I mean, that, that flew higher this year, uh, like we've never seen this before in terms of velocity at all. Last year, I had this chart out. You may recall this, this, this inverse pattern. It was like a, in October, it was 1.5%. Mm-hmm. I had an inverse, I had a technical target, and it got to 3.2%, hit it on the nose, then retreated. That was the point when we saw the market rally in, in May, right? It, it had made a new low, then we saw the 10-year retreat market rally. Then what happened in June is the CPI numbers came out, 10-year freaked out, made new highs, one to 3.5% markets dropped to lows. So when you have a, just making a technical comment here, is when you have a technical pattern play out, like we had that inverse going from 1.5 to 3.2%, the pattern has played, and then you wait, and you look, okay, let's see if we can get a new pattern. Now we have a new pattern, because we, we're building this really tight rising wedge on, on the 10-year and the 3.5 that it hit in June hit the top of the trend line, now reversed, and guess what? We're seeing a rally in equity markets. So that chart is super important conceptually because it goes to what I said at the, at the beginning. This debt-laden system cannot handle higher rates. 3.2%, by the way, was where it stopped in December of 2018. Excuse me, the, the, in the fall of 2018, 10-year hit 3.2%, markets fell apart, Fed flip-flopped, that was the end of it. That was with eight, nine trillion dollars of less debt. So we cannot be in a situation where the 10-year continues to hover above 3.2% for an extended period of time. So if they want to really avoid a severe recession and a soft landing, the 10-year must come down. It must come below 3%. And then my, this was going back to my earlier January concept. If they wanted to just job on the market, let the market tight, let the market over tighten as it now has. And then they come and see the 10 year reverse and have the Fed meet it somewhere in the middle. So instead of a 3.8% Fed funds, right, maybe they'll stop at two and a half, 2.6, 2.7. And that's it. And that's, that's the end of the tightening cycle. So I'm wondering as I'm watching this now and the 10 year having a reverse again. It has the tightening cycle from a market perspective already peaked as the market is starting to price in a recession risk coming, right? And then that's the pivot. But we won't realize it until after the fact. Yeah, It's yeah. just in the, in the here and now you can, you can make observations. All I, I said is, you know, if they can't get that done and the tenure keeps flying higher, we're going to keep making new lows in markets. Hmm. If, the, if the tightening cycle has peaked, and the 10 year is now going to break its uptrend pattern, you're going to have a massive risk on asset rally. Mm. Because the, again, positioning, negativity, and relief, frankly, because mm. that then says the worst is over. And I think we're just going to need to be cognizant that things can get a lot more violent, not only to the downside, but also to the upside. That's why I'm kind of making this bear market rally case. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating when you're looking at especially a lot of these treasury yield curves. The one that that's got my attention right now is over in Japan. They're trying to do yield curve control and you're seeing Aren't they always <laughs> and, and I guess I'm just trying to understand how that all plays into the broader the broader markets, because if they're if they're doing the opposite of Fed policy, 
with their yield curve control. And it seems like they're they're working very hard to keep the peg, the yield peg in place. How does that play into the the calculus, the global calculus of 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 everything that's playing out? Because they're adding units. Um, others are are aggressively tightening units, uh, you know, monetary units in the system. So how how do you think through that? And like, you know, how do you add that into the overall scheme of how you're how you're optically viewing where this goes next? Well, first of all, we we've seen over the last few years several times where central banks were polar opposite in terms of policy. Right? We had that in 2017, 18, when the Fed was raising rates and reducing their balance sheet while the ECP kept printing, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. Japan kept printing and they kept rates at negative. Right, so that that's that's not unusual. What what then obviously changed the equation was you saw that with overnight repo, overnight rates also jumped in the U.S. and also they brought this whole repo program in to keep things under control. Maybe Japan, Japan is kind of in that situation now, mm. in the sense that the entire globe is moving towards tightening. Obviously, their policy is completely out of sync with that, and now obviously requires more and more intervention. The question is how long they can keep this up. And that's the problem with permanent intervention. You're creating an, a, a financial system that's disconnected from fundamentals in a big, big, big way. Japan, Kuroda, and, you know, they've done nothing but print for, for years and years. So I think right now they are very desperate. Uh, what you don't want to see actually is them losing control because I think that could break something globally. That's clearly a risk factor, right? Because that would push yields higher all over the place if, if Japan lost control. So I think this timing now between the summer and into the fall is very critical. Because if, if I'm correct in saying that the 10-year may have peaked, which I don't know if I'm correct, and we're dropping lower on yields and we're getting support from inflation data in terms of new CPI, PPI reports coming in July and August, then that actually takes pressure off the Bank of Japan. You heard you heard the term widowmaker, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You know, people betting against the power of central banks and Bank of Japan, and specifically, they do have the ability to create money out of nothing, right? They have an unlimited supply, so you know, I think there's a lot of people scared that if they're going to try this again, betting against the Bank of Japan, they're going to get railroaded again, right? That's Yes. So basically what I'm saying is there's, there's risk in the system and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we have central banks fighting for control, trying to get a hold of uh, the narrative in an inflation. Part of it may just simply be public posturing. The concern is that indeed they, they are going to break something. And you know, maybe on that note, I should say just a personal observation here. Given the amount of carnage that we've seen, in not only in indexes, but specifically in stocks, where we've seen stocks dropping 40, 50, 60, 70, 80%. I'm actually surprised we haven't seen a major blow up yet by anyone. Yeah, and I know. That brings me back to my earlier <laughs> comment about this all seeming very controlled. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, you know, traditionally, you know, I've been known sometimes to be a bear. <laughs> Traditionally, I would say, you know, this is, the, if this, this is the perfect environment for something to blow up and get really ugly. But it's so calm. It's so, you know, steady. You know? In traditional okay, markets, got, for sure. <laughs> in traditional, Relative yeah, it's, to it's the, very, uh, yeah, the digital asset space is a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, blue. 
you know, growing pain. Major right? disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Major disaster. Yeah. So now what, what I'm saying is, okay, well, you know, look at the arcs of the world. I mean, you know, there's the, this, Facebook, you know, forget Arc or these are major fang stalwarts of the bull market. Netflix completely destroyed Facebook. And you know that so many funds were highly exposed to this. Yet where's where's the drama? Where's my where's my where's my big VIX spike? What I have been seeing this year is the S P makes lower lows and the VIX makes lower highs. Sven, do you think that some of it has to do with there were just monumental gains made in the preceding years since COVID. I mean, there was, there was a year and a half that, I mean, you had a raging bull market where, I mean, people just crushed. I mean, you, people made what they would typically make in a decade in that short one and a half year time frame in financial markets. Is this the reason why we aren't seeing the bull? Because I'm with you. It doesn't make any sense to me, to me that we haven't seen something really kind of explode in traditional markets. But do you think that that's why? It comes back to leverage. I mean, look at margin debt last year. I mean, it just blew higher, far beyond what we saw in 2000 or during the the housing bubble. I mean, it's absolutely massive leveraging on on the side of retail, for example. The, The one stat that just blew my mind last year was that last year alone, more money flowed into stocks from retail than in the previous two decades combined. That's insane amount of money, right? Yeah. And, and, and so did they all sell the top and living at the beach? <laughs> I don't think so, no. <laughs> right? right? There is pain out there. And that's what I was saying. I think maybe the, and this is the worry I have, is the Fed, again, making a policy mistake by underestimating how much pain there actually is out there. And we see mm-hmm. that kind of with the savings rate as well. You know, this is one of the things that always irked me with central bankers, you know, this, this sheer leading right up until the bitter end. Remember Bernanke 2008, there is no sign of a recession. Subprime is contained, you know, before it blew up in everybody's face. And then he got renominated as the hero, right? Because he, he intervened. And then we saw this last year again, with every one of these guys bombarding markets all year long saying inflation is transitory. I mean, they, they literally promoted this risk on environment, you know, and the S&P was just a tracker of, of the Fed balance sheet. Now we've dropped over 30% on small caps, NASDAQ, and, and, you, and you know, if it wasn't for some of the specific stocks, and especially energy holding things up, because that's where you've seen gains, that actually under, underneath the damage is a lot more pervasive. So to me, this, the notion that all this is consequence-free and we can have kind of a soft landing here with rates staying as high as they are, to me, is a fantasy construct. So something needs to give very shortly here in the summer. Otherwise, this fall is going to be, it's going to be a show to yeah. remember. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise 
dot com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I had a question come from the audience. Uh, this one's from Eddie. He wanted to know if you found technical analysis harder over the last few years, given the Fed's massive influence on the markets. And then, uh, Sven, if, if you don't mind, as a, as a follow-up to that, just give us some of, your, some of your thoughts in general about technical analysis and how you find it as a tool for maybe a beginner investor or somebody who's just kind of new to the space. Okay. So first to Ed's question. I find technical analysis to this day to be incredibly helpful. I mean, look, maybe mixing the answer with the, the other question you had about technical analysis in general. Technical analysis is not a guarantee. It's not a 
tool that guarantees you anything, you can still be taken out positions. And that's why people sometimes call it voodoo or squiggly lines and this, that, and the other. What technical analysis to me anyway is we're all in the position of great uncertainty, right? Anything can happen at any time. But it helps us identify a positive risk reward. For example, do I want to continue pressing long here in this technical setup? And this could be on the charts, on the signals, on the positioning. It's, it's, a, it's a whole heap of tools, and you can make this really complicated, which I don't like. I'd like to actually keep it very simple. Kiss, keep it simple, stupid. That's one of my wife's lines, and she's been just marvelous. And I can go through all kinds of tools, which we don't need to go through, but I'm, I'm saying when the search is to find what the market deems relevant, it keeps us honest in, in that sense, because we may all have opinions and we may have biases and, you know, we want this to go to a million and, you know, and this to drop 100%. This is not realistic, but it helps us keep us honest in the sense that we can say, look, you know, this, we can debate all day long. Why? But it is relevant to the market. And if it's relevant to the market, it has to be relevant to me as someone's trying to position for a profitable trade. Right. And it's going back to Ed's question specifically. I, I gave you one example. This is really recent. This was here in, in, in June 16th, 17th. I posted this chart on Twitter about the broad and nice NYSE index. Right? One of the most powerful tools to me in technical analysis is confluence, where, okay, there's not one particular point that on a chart that's of interest, but rather it's multiple things happening at the same time, which I found fascinating. And in NICE specifically, it was the weekly 200 MA, it was the February 2020 highs, and it was the 38.2 FIB. And they were all in the same zone, mm. which to me just screamed confluence, mm. support. So is that to say a guarantee that NICE does not drop lower? No, and I pointed this out on Twitter. I said, there's a lower gap below. This area doesn't hold. But I also said, this is an area of confluence that would be of interest for bulls to take a major stand at because it, it had all these areas together. And guess what? It did. I, mean, I keep tracking that chart. It just bounced right off there like a rocket. Right? So technical analysis absolutely matters. Now, to be fair, what we see when all these interventions over the years, I've come to realize that the extremes become ever more extreme to the upside as well as to the downside. When you have too much fluff in the system, the down moves can be absolutely awe-inspiring. And there will be times when you know technical analysis also gets blown out. It's not a hot, as I said, it's not a guarantee. You just got to be aware where the control pivots are and then figure out if that is a trade worth taking from a risk reward perspective, you know, stop management and, and all that. Not financial advice. <laughs> just, <laughs> no, it, it's, it's a tool and we got to learn how to use the tool. And keep in mind, banks use technical analysis. They have whole teams of technical analysis. They're basing on all this as well. It's, it's, some may call it a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's, it's, it's not. I mean, it, yes, a lot of people are looking at different things, but it makes sense because the market is sensitive to it and is reactive to it. And our job is to find out where those points are and then use those points to develop a positive risk reward entry point 
the final point on this, and I freely admit this, when, when, when you're in a heavy, heavy printing environment like we were last year, the cell signals often get washed away. It's very tricky. But it comes back down to the, the simplest things. And trend lines, for example, are very powerful. Yeah, you can get a spike over, you can get a drop below or whatever temporarily. But markets really respect this as well. And as we got into November, December, the S&P was screaming against a long-term trend. The NICE did as well. And it just kept stopping there. Like every time it dinged it, and then while the Fed kept printing, that correlation was, was there. So every time it dinged, it was definitely worth an effort to, to get a sellout. And we got, we got these occasional drops. You know, they weren't very dramatic. But then once the trend broke, all hell broke loose, right? That's why it's an art form, I would say, to mix technical analysis with what's understanding what's going on on the macro front and what the trends are, and then present a, a comprehensive picture of how you want to approach this from a trading perspective. You know, as a, as a guy who started off as a value guy exclusively, I was very suspect of anything technical analysis related, but through time, I found that things that have a larger market cap, or if I can kind of look at a sector by combining equity indices or whatever to, to manufacture a larger market cap collectively, I find that there's a, a lot of signal, like you're saying, probability-wise in using technical analysis when I'm dealing with a larger market cap. When you're looking at like smaller market caps, I think it's just so volatile and dependent on like much smaller factors that are hard to predict or forecast based on looking at, at price exclusively. So yeah, no, those are some interesting uh, comments. And I really like your comment about the confluence. I think that's an important factor uh, for people to think about. Sven, so you seem to be more amenable, <laughs> is the word I'm going to use, <laughs> to Bitcoin playing a role in potentially the resolution of, of a lot of this you know, craziness that we're talking about with respect to central banking policy. In general, what are your thoughts around it? What, what kind of played a role in some of that change of heart or maybe just looking at it a little bit differently? Well, as you said at the outset, we had a couple of little <laughs> dust-ups, you know, at the beginning. Now, look, for me, it was an evolution as well. Part of it, part of my capitulation process was my, my wife kept beating me up over it. She's been a long-term bull on, on Bitcoin. To me, analytically, I, at the beginning, I, I obviously, you know, I saw the, the run-up in 2017 to that high and that complete collapse. Looking at the technology, wasn't clear to me that central banks would actually ever allow it in, in terms of being, yeah, these guys, all a monetary North Korean dictatorships. There's no they have complete control over the, the monetary system. So why would they actually allow this to happen? And maybe with regulation together, they would squash the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of mm -hmm. course, we drop, what, from 17,000, 20,000 to 3,500. And that was the first kind of the big pain wave. But then also looked at it from the human component in terms of where you actually see development happening. It's actually working from a technical perspective. You know, it, it is very clearly defined. And you see people like Jack, from former CEO of Twitter, getting heavily involved. And they're, they're smart people. 
and, and they're doing a lot of things around it. Then the regulatory path started evolving a bit where I started realizing, you know what? They can't shut it down. Mm-hmm. They can't ban it. I mean, they can, they can make it difficult, absolutely, but no, they, they can't shut it down. But then at the same time, I saw, as you know, it's talking about this massive asset bubble. So I saw all this other stuff coming about that reminded me very much of the 2000 tech bubble, the fluff, you know, the overexcitement, you know, the, the emotions uh, along with it, the recklessness in some cases in terms of behavior. You know, as you know, we got spammed to hell with bots and, and everything else. These are kind of all the, the negative components. So in terms of an asset bubble, I was very concerned that everything could blow up in, in that sense. And I started talking to Michael Saylor last year. My f- I had three discussions with him. The first one, then you know, I was kind of coming from the point of, okay, let me try to poke holes in the whole thing. And during that discussion, this 2000 tech bubble aspect come, came back in my mind. And Michael and I talked about the components. You know, we had, we had obviously stocks get completely obliterated in the wake of the tech bubble, including Amazon, including Apple and all, I mean, they dropped 80, 90%. But, and this is the, the hindsight equation, you know, are, are you looking at business models that are sustainable or that have the potential to have a global dominance and footprint? And clearly, you know, in hindsight, we know the Apples and the Amazons of the world were exactly that, whereby, you know, pets.com and all that stuff completely blew up. So then, then that became of interest to me because I said, okay, well, let's look at the space and what do I see as a winning business model long-term in, in that construct? And that, that's where when you are in an asset bubble, you want to see how this all falls out, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we just saw that. Mm-hmm. We just saw this this year. In January, my second discussion with Michael was, my first nibble uh, at Bitcoin when it had dropped, I think it was down to low 30,000. So just a little nibble because I was still in the full cognition that we're still in an asset. And, and I pointed out the charts, going back to Ed's question earlier about the relevance of technical charts. One of the things I always liked about Bitcoin, and I've said this for the last year and a half or so, that I like that it acts very technically. Mm-hmm. You can actually chart it beautifully. And I, I've been pointing out Bitcoin on the Northcast for, for months and months. I, you know, when I see bullish signs, I point at the bullish signs. When I see the negatives, the, the bearish aspect of it, bear flags or whatever, it, it plays it. It plays it really nicely. In fact, this last few weeks, when, when the markets dropped, Bitcoin, my third discussion, Michael Saylor, I talked about the 17,000 level. We dropped to 20,000. I said 17,000. There's a major trend line there, major, major support trend line. And that's the immediate risk. And, but as long as it holds the trends intact, guess what? We hit literally that weekend, we hit 17.5, tacked the trend line and have bounced from there. I'm not saying anything is clear, but you know, it's, it's all part of a process to me. And I mean, yeah, if, if we were to drop that trend line, boy, folks, things can get a lot uglier. Okay, just, yeah. just be absolutely clear on that. And I said that's in January. You know, you can make the case because there's a large, a large macro trend line that points down to six, 7,000. Know, I'm not predicting anything. I'm just looking at the overall risk. And that's why it's so important whether we are now in a structural bear market that lasts for a couple of years, in which the case this can happen, or we're coming out of this and this will have been like a you know first 
half of the year's scare because, and that's the other thing I've been pointing out for the last couple of years, is the asset correlation is massively high between the S&P and Bitcoin in terms of the directional flow. In fact, in recent weeks, it got to like 95%. In my case in January was what's missing for Bitcoin is that regulatory framework because from a demand perspective, I think there's a lot of funds that are professional investors that want to get to Bitcoin, but they don't have the regulatory clarity and they can't actually invest until they do have that regulatory clarity. So if I look at this, then I see a bear market. I mean, I see an asset bubble that's popping. I see business models getting crushed left, right, and center in the crypto space. I see the fluff coming out, which I think is a positive thing because once you have the creative destruction, then you can have that longer term view in terms of what will maintain, what will be sustained. You heard Gary Gensler from the SEC yesterday saying, considering Bitcoin a commodity, it's kind of singling it out, which is of interest as well. So you, you're looking, you know, the, the Twitter handle is Northman Trader, not Northman Investor. But in, 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 in terms of Bitcoin, I do see it as a longer term hold for me. So that's, that's why I outlined in January, I want to kind of use this year with the view that an acid bubble could be bursting, I'm going to use this year as a kind of slow, patient, scaling-in strategy over time. You know, 20,000 was a level I mentioned in early January as well. Right? That, that, that was kind of a key support line as well. So now here we are. So it's part of a process. And I think long-term, it's, it's very positive for Bitcoin. Now, of course, if you, you know, bought at 50, 60,000 and you're writing this down, this is no fun, right? That's why I kind of stayed away from that psych hype at the time <laughs> so you know sometimes by the way just a general comment i think for anyone uh whether you're a short-term trader or a long-term trader or investor the biggest skill i find that i continue to teach myself is patience you know that's why for example you know if if i were really patient I just maybe trade two or three times a year wait like for the big confluence points to come together yeah but, you know, we're also creatures that want instant gratification, yes, right? So yes. we, we get trigger happy on, on the finger. But that's one thing I learned over the years to just be a lot more patient. But at the same time, when, when a setup hits, fight for it too, you know, because things will be volatile. It's not like, you know, okay, thing here you go. You know, you, you got to be willing to sweat it out because that that also happens at key points yeah let's be persistent but disciplined all right so uh here's my last question so you spend okay. a lot of time in nature i do you're, you're <laughs> out in nature and i love the pictures i love the memes also but uh i love the pictures that you post what is it that you have learned from nature that you apply to your stock investing and just kind of the way that you optically view markets well, it goes back to this patience thing, you know, nature, you know, I live here, I'll just put this out. I live here out in the countryside in England. It's absolutely lovely. And there's, the, I love England, by the way. I mean, I, I just moved here a few years ago, eight, nine years ago, but it's, it's an amazing place because everyone over time wanted to come here. The Romans did, the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, the Normans. 
and you get to see all these places uh, that have been around for, for a very long time. And that kind of, don't want to get too philosophical here, but it, it helps really keep the macro in perspective. In a, you know, things change over time, but they also stay the same. And it helps me actually just, the beauty for me is I can just step outside and I'm, I'm in nature, you know. I'm, we're forced to stare at screens long enough as it is, right? So it's a nice, nice outlet here. I love it. So wouldn't want to be anywhere else at this point. Although the winters are rough. <laughs> yeah, but you it's know what? Fine. You can, you, you, do you snow ski at all? No, we don't get snow in England. We get rain. You get rain. We, we, either, get, <laughs> we get either, we either get cold rain or freezing rain. You oh, know? Man. That's where the wood shopping comes in. Cause you know, we, we got a nice wood burner, got the ax out. I love it. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. So that's amazing can't, can't stuff. Complain. That's amazing stuff. Uh, Sven, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, I've been a fan for years. It might not have seemed like it at at a few moments, but, um, I'm serious. I've been a fan of yours for years and just, I love how succinctly you can get to the crux of what's important in the markets and you can do it in a single tweet or a single chart that I think everybody that follows you when they see it, they're like, yes, yes, that's the chart right there. That explains exactly how I feel right now about these market conditions. And it takes a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge to be able to pinpoint things like that. So such an honor to talk to you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and uh, have the conversation and give people a a handoff to your content and uh, things that we can put in our show notes. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, the website is northmantrader.com. I also have the Northcast out where I try to explain charts, what I see in terms of markets, and of course, the Twitter handle at northmantrader. And you know, I, I sprinkle sarcasm into my tweets. Sometimes that doesn't work because people don't get that it's sarcasm. It's sarcasm. I, had, I had some some person, attorney from Florida, got upset with me yesterday about a little sarcastic tweet, but you know that happens. So sometimes it's lost in translation. But yes, I, I try to look at the end of the day. What I try to do is I try to keep it real. We are in a complex world. I try to add some humor in it, but sometimes the humor just writes itself because I just need to comment on what people actually say or do and what I, versus what's actually happening. So it's kind of it, it's an ongoing comedy show. And, and I, you know what comedy is good for us. I think humor is, is helpful uh, getting through complex times, but it also helps make what is said being what it's being done. And in general, I, I am a bit, I guess, woeful about how this has all been evolving over, over the years because people are getting hurt. This is, you know, this is, you know, we say it's made fun and giggles. It's not. Inflation right now is hurting a lot of people, and this wealth inequality issue is is strenuous because we're seeing it in politics now. The tensions are high, and society gets ever more divided. That's not a positive thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think things would be as extreme if we didn't say the middle class shrinking decade after decade after decade. It's a challenge. So yeah, we keep it light but real. That's the deal. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and we'll have links to uh, all your stuff there in the show notes. And thanks for your time today. Preston, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank Enjoy you, the sir. rest of your day. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Cheers. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin specific shows come out every Wednesday and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. 
If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.